take out your Bibles uh, for really no reason. Okay, here's why. Uh, I am extremely Bible intensive, as you know, and I love to read through the Bible. But once now that we've got to the last, what, last day of Jesus's life, now that we're towards the end, there's no way I can merely go through Matthew's account by himself because we're going to miss too much stuff. So what we do normally around here, if you're familiar with it, is that we combine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I do that in my office during the week, and that's kind of a, a big amount of time that I spend. Now, somebody came to me this week, and they said, Lance, you do realize that there are Bibles that are chronological, that, that you can just take it from there. And I said, yes, but I do not trust those people. So I have to do it myself. And what it does is as I am forced to go through it and rehash and move and shift, it allows me to do some deeper study into the material and understand it inside and out. Uh, unfortunately, I came up pretty empty this time. And here's why. I walked into some of the commentaries and they said right off the bat, this is difficult. Okay, well, they're not kidding. Um, this particular section, I have not run into a more difficult section to combine. Reason why is that if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, everything seems to go swimmingly. Everything is excellent. They all agree. Then John ruins it is really what happens. John's account jumps in there and it seems to throw a wrench into everything because he has a totally different order of how it happened. So normally you would say, well, just go with the other guys. Problem is John has the most lengthy, the most detailed and the most nailed down account out of all of them, but it throws everything around. So when I got done with all my analysis, as a matter of fact, at 1230 a.m. last night, I could not feel less confident about what I came to. So here's the main issues that are in front of us. Basically, when Jesus goes through his trials, he goes through two major trials, a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. The order of those events, when did Peter deny Christ? When did Judas kill himself? These major events, you're not quite sure where they're placed. So the events that I'm going to lay out to you tonight, I do with a lot of humility and say, you know what? This is my best analysis that I got for you. Am I wrong in certain areas? I bet you I am. However, I haven't found any commentaries that haven't nailed down really good either. So everybody's kind of having a hard time with this one. The bottom line that we need to remember is that Jesus was on trial, that Jesus did get beaten for us. Jesus did things that were extraordinary in his love for us, and he passionately loves us. We need to know all of those things. What order they're in ultimately is not going to matter, but I'm pretty focused on trying to get it right. But it only bugs me when I make it academic, when I make it about the heart it really doesn't matter that much if one event happened before another. So when we engage with the word tonight, I need you to engage with it as I read through it. And most of tonight will be reading and you go, well, how's that going to be a sermon? How's that useful? The text itself will speak to you better than I can. I could merely shorten it and try to start making a bunch of comments on it. And I will make a few here and there. But honestly, the gospel writers wrote it in such a vivid, extraordinary and personal fashion. We can read right through it and you'll get all the heart of what he's trying to say. We must understand when we leave tonight the love of God. If we do not, we've missed everything. 
in order to make it come alive and make it even more personal, I have a fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet because I want you to keep one concept in mind as we read through the text. And the fill in the blanks are these. Passionate love makes standing strong that much easier. Passionate love makes standing strong that much easier. And here's the question I want you to keep in your mind as we read. What are you willing to do for someone that you love that you would never do otherwise? How far are you willing to go for people you care about? Because Jesus is about to go through maddening circumstances. He's about to be misconstrued. He's about to be displayed in an improper fashion. He will be mocked. He will be ridiculed. He will be spit on. He will be beat. And you will see it go over and over and over into areas that are never fit for a king. And he endures it all for us. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie? Anybody seen that? All right. The majority of you. Um, I'm pretty good through the movie. Um, all the way up until one point. There's one point that snaps me every time. Now, I've seen it multiple times. That every time I start crying there and then I don't stop till the end of the movie. And it's always the same place. Do you all remember the beating scene? We're going to be studying that tonight. The beating scene where he is chained to the post and they're whipping him. And he falls down under the pressure. Do you remember that? Then what does he do? He stands back up to receive more pain. Every time I see that, which is merely an actor portraying a true event, I fall apart. Why? Because there's something in a demonstration, um, even a drama, that reminds me that my Jesus did it willingly. It reminds me that no matter how much it hurt, He stood back up under the pain and said, bring it again, because I want to hurt so that my children never have to. Now, it's hard for me to teach this message without getting teary, so I'm not trying to be emotional with you. Last service, I barely made it through, so I think I'm going to do okay tonight. But it reminded me of one event in my life, which was a little teeny snippet that made it very personal. Um, my wife has really gotten involved in decorating and um, reupholstering and sewing. And she does pretty much our house is kind of like an art display of her work now. And so she tears apart chairs. And when you pull them all apart, there's an awful lot of staples in a chair. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at a chair, but apparently all the world's staples are in one chair. I don't know why. So when you rip all that stuff apart, staples go everywhere. So you put down a sheet and you catch them all. Well, I remember that all of them were not caught, and I found a couple on the carpet, and I knew that there was more there. For the next few days, and I searched everywhere, for the next few days, I wore socks or no shoes and walked through the carpet, hoping and praying that I would step on the staples before my little girls did. Because I knew that I wouldn't be able to find them, but I so desperately didn't want the four-year-old and the eight-year-old to step on it because it would hurt them more than it would hurt me. And so I went around trying to step on them so they would never have to. And in that little way of feeling like a daddy who's trying to protect his little girls, that makes you do things that you never normally do. You understand what I'm saying? And that is why Jesus did what he did. Let's pray for the text. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes and our hearts that we might be able to see you differently. Jesus, when you suffered all the ridicule and the mocking, I get angry. When you suffer the pain, I get sad. 
And I don't know why, maybe it's just this time in my life why I get so emotional about it. But Lord, in many ways, I want to thank you for that. I don't want to engage with it impassionate. I don't want to engage with it with no feelings whatsoever. But if we're really going to see you, if we're really going to understand what you did for us, we have to know your word. Would you open up your word to us tonight and show us what we can't normally see? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you combined all the accounts, it would sound like this. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place where Jesus would be because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. While he was still speaking, the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, arrived in the grove. He was leading a large crowd with some officials from the chief priests, from the Pharisees, from the teachers of the law and the elders of the people. And he was leading an attachment of soldiers armed with swords and clubs that were sent from the chief priests. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now the betrayer had arranged, arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And as he approached Jesus to kiss him, Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Friend, do what you came for. Now, let's... Pause right there. Here's a couple things that irritate me about this event. Judas took him to a private place. And he used a private means to turn him over. If you're going to stab me in the back, just do it straight up. Don't violate everything that was precious to me or safe to me. When it says the beginning, that was a place that Judas knew because Jesus would always take his disciples there. It almost sounds like a date place. It's almost like, and then they went back to the place where they first met and where they had all their most intimate discussions, and that was their safe haven. That was a place that no one would bother them. That was a place they could run away from the world. And he brought the world right in there. And then, instead of just going, that's the guy, go get him. What does he do? He does the whole kiss routine. Why? I mean, I didn't even think about it until I started studying it again for this message. Why the kiss sign? Who's he leading into the garden? A bunch of leaders of the Jews. Wasn't Jesus the guy they've been trying to kill for the last week? Isn't it that they know who he is? Don't they see him every day? He'll even tell them, you see me there every day. He just chased people out of the temple, scared them all away, set up shop, began to do healings and started a teaching ministry right in the temple courts. They know what he looks like. Why in the world do we have to give some indicator, some sign to where they're going to go, oh, that's the guy. I, I didn't know who he was. There's so many bearded Jewish men. I had no idea. Why do they need to give him a sign? What's that all about? Is it so dark in the grove that there was no way to know? Were they really going to arrest the wrong guy? Was Judas adding insult to injury? There's a million speculations about what was going on. I just don't like it. That's all I know. He could have done a different, some type of different sign, some type of different signal. And he didn't. He went in and he made it personal. And I don't like that at all. Now, when they're about to arrest Jesus, something unusual is going to occur. And we learn only in Mark's gospel about this. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them, meaning the crowd, 
that came to arrest him. Who is it that you want? Now, the soldiers are out in front. They have to tell him what's going on. They're probably hired guns. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You ever read that before? Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is up there and all of a sudden this, his becomes dazzling white and it almost like this glory starts breaking out of him? I feel like this was a little reminder when Jesus in all of his power as who I believe is a commander of the army of God has these soldiers in front of him and he said, who do you want? I said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he uses an I am statement. All of a sudden it scares the living daylights out of him. Boom, they all hit the ground. And I believe that was a sign to everyone saying, you don't take me if I don't want you to take me. Do you understand? Everybody good with that? Then he says this to them. He said, he asked them, who is it then that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, I told you that I'm he. Jesus answered, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. Something important to note is although they all scatter and flee, not one of them is arrested. That's important. They all could have been arrested. Jesus made sure that they weren't. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And when the followers, meaning the disciples, saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Now, they're pretty tense, right? Everybody's riled up. They want to fight these guys. You're not going to take my man away, right? The problem is, is how many swords do they have? Anybody remember from last week? Two. Two. What are you going to do, man? It's like two guys. The guys with swords are yelling, right? Shall we draw our swords? And the other guys are like, I don't have a sword. I, I, I'd rather just talk. Can we just kind of talk it out? That would be awesome. Okay, because they don't have anything, right? So sure enough, who usually is the loud mouth that's yelling everything out? Well, that's always Peter, so you find out it is him yelling. With that, one of Jesus' companions standing near, Simon Peter, reached for his sword, drew it, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, was he aiming for his ear? No, he was aiming to lop off his head. That was the whole point. He's not like on an ear mission. He is there to kill this guy. Well, the guy ducked out of the way. He got an ear. Now, Peter, I mean, this is craziness. Peter, remember he told him, I will die for you. Well, right now he's in maximum fighting mode. So he is literally going to put his life on the line. And he comes in swinging and just starts hacking away. Well, but Jesus commanded Peter, no more of this. Put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Now, that is a massive rebuke to Peter. Why? Because do you remember the last time Peter tried to get in the way and stop this process? What did Jesus call him? Satan. He said, Peter, are you doing it again? Is that what you're doing? You're going to shut me down and stop this process? You think you really want to do that? Because I don't think you want to do that. We've already had this discussion, boy. Get out of my way. Listen to the next phrase. Do you not think... I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Anybody know how many a legion is? 6,000. What's 6,000 times 12? 72,000 angels. He said, what, you don't think that I can have the army of God behind me immediately? You really think that I'm getting arrested because I can't defend myself? It's never been about what I can't do 
or what I can do. It's been about what I want to do. Peter, put your sword away. You know how this goes. But how would it be that the scriptures be fulfilled that it must say that it must happen this way? He touched the man's ear and he healed him. Now, that's only found in Luke. What does Luke do for a living? He's a doctor. So then he's like, hey, just I, he put the ear back on. I just wanted you guys to know that. I don't know if it was kind of brushing the dust off of it or he gave him a new ear. I have no idea. At that time, Jesus said to those who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you. I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. You didn't lay a hand on me. Oh, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander arrested Jesus and all the disciples deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So now there's a little streaker running away. Now, John, at this point, includes a fact that the other guys don't. But since we're teaching through Matthew, I'm not going to stop and read it. But what he says is the first thing they do with Jesus is take him to Annas, the former high priest. You all remember how I taught last week about who Joseph Caiaphas was and the fancy reason about why he's a big deal as a high priest? Well, he only got that job because his father-in-law used to be the high priest. That's Annas. And you know, when there's a change in leadership, some people like the old guard better than the new guard. So there's a couple reasons why it may be that they take him to the other guy first. One speculation is they're trying to buy Caiaphas time to assemble the Sanhedrin. Another one is that they literally wanted to take him before Annas and say, you used to be the big dog. Come on. What are we going to do with this guy? And they began a trial right there. Uh, this is where the chronology gets a little bit messed up, but we're going to move on to after him to taking him before the current high priest named Joseph Caiaphas. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where all the chief priests, teachers of the law and the elders had assembled together. But Peter followed him at a distance right up into the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and when the guards had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them to see the outcome and warmed himself of the fire. Stop. Who's he sitting next to? The guards. He just tried to hack off one of their ears. This is a bold man. He is still following through. Now, he may have been embarrassed that he fled in the garden, but now he's following Jesus. We find out from the account that two disciples followed Jesus. Most scholars believe that it was not only Peter, but also John. So those two guys are following Jesus along. Now, I will tell you this. They're risking their lives. You don't just hang out by all the guys that you just were ready to fight with. So Peter, as much as we think of him for his denials, we need to think about him for his bravery. The only reason he denied Christ is because he kept sticking around Christ when everyone else was gone. Peter is trying to put into practice this great courage. Now he's going to realize he's not as tough as he thinks he is, but he's going to try. And so here he is standing just outside of where Jesus is on trial. It says... The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Who is the Sanhedrin? They are a special council of Jewish big dogs. It's basically a little sprinkling from all the different groups that everyone respected. There was, they were a core of 71 members, and they were the Supreme Court of the Jews. When something had to be decided that was of massive importance, they had to assemble. What was different about that was they had high, tight rules on what they were and were not allowed to do. They made their own rules. And the rules were, 
Any important trials or any trials at all must be handled in the daytime. What time is it? It's nighttime. They violated that rule. If there's any type of capital offense case, they have to hold it in public. They cannot hold it in private. Where are they at right now? They're in private. You will go through all their rules and they violate all their rules because they're so angry at Jesus and they just want to get rid of him. Now, not all the Sanhedrin was against Jesus. The Sanhedrin was selections from people like the Pharisees. Are all the Pharisees against Jesus? No. How do we know that? Jesus had a really cool conversation with one of them who ends up when Jesus is being buried. Do you remember? Who's the guy standing there? Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Just remember that not everybody was against Christ. So they literally have to hold a council and argue over what they're going to do with this guy. Because not everybody is of the same mind. The majority are, and that's all they need, is majority. But they did not find, uh, it says they, they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, but their statements did not agree. Finally, two came forward and declared false testimony against him. Quote, we heard this fellow say, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. I'll destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man. But even their testimony didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one, the son of God. I am, said Jesus. You all know that I am statements are really significant. What's interesting is this is one of the only times in the Bible where you get a straight answer from Jesus calling himself the son of God. That's very rare. He will always veil it in Jewish terms to explain to them. They all knew he was calling himself the son of God. But from a Greek understanding or a Western mindset, we want him to say it. This is one of the closest places that you'll ever come in scripture to him being very blatant about who he is. He said, I am. But I tell you, and he's going to make it worse. I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel 7.13. Why is that important? Because the Jews know that that's the Deliverer. That's the Mighty One. That's the Son of God. That's the Messiah. All of a sudden, they just freak out. Did you just call yourself God? And they completely come unglued. It says, then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. Now, what do you think? And they condemned him. He is worthy of death, they answered. And some began to spit on his face. The men who were guarding Jesus blindfolded him and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and began mocking him, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things. And the guards took him and beat him. So here we have this Jewish trial just launching off and these guys just go after him and they begin to attack him personally they begin to mock him and ridicule him but it gets even more they start doing this whole um like religious persecution thing on him they be blindfold him and then they begin to smack him and they say oh you're the big prophet guy come on you know who it was you don't need to see you don't need your eyes big seer guy you know what you're doing go ahead and prophesy it you tell us which one of you hit us you impress us magic man all this demeaning, all this demoralizing. And Jesus is silent through it all. 
Because every time in his picture of his mind, you know he can see, I don't want this happening to my kids. It's going to happen to a lot of them. But you know what? The ultimate price that I'm going to pay, I want to make sure they never have to. Now, Peter was sitting out below in the courtyard and one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter seated there in the firelight, warming himself, she looked closely at him. Hey, you were with that Nazarene, Jesus of Galilee, she said. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked. He replied, I am not. And he denied it before them all. Woman, I don't know and I don't understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway entryway. So now he's had one denial. But now instead of running home, where does he go? He only goes to the outer courtyard. He still is trying to stick in there. We, even though he denied Christ right now, he's still not running away. He still has more boldness than the rest of the disciples, except maybe John. It was cold and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was standing with them, warming himself. And a little later, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, that fellow's one of them. And another servant girl saw him and she said to the people there, that fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Someone else saw him and said, hey, you're one of them. And he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Man, I am not, Peter denied it again with an oath. I don't know that man. In other words, an oath is, I promise, I swear to heaven. I swear by God, I don't even know who he is. You don't need to bring in swearing. You don't need to bring in an oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. He knows what's going on. But he's calling down these promises. You're going, really? Is that really what you want to do? About an hour later, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, was standing near. He went up to Peter and challenged him. Hey, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? The guy was there. And then Peter denied it again. But he said, surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. Now, one commentary said the uh, the Galilean spoke with such a nasty accent that they were never allowed to close a synagogue. They didn't even want Galileans to talk. They're like, you know what? Just shut up and stay in church. Don't even say anything. You have such a gnarly way of talking. Just let it go, man. Okay, so it was so distinct that when he starts denying and yelling out loud, They're like, you are a Galilean. Look at you. Look at how you're talking. Everybody can tell. Surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. Then Peter began to call curses down on himself. And he swore to them, man, I don't know this man you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, a rooster crowed. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And Luke says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. What's he doing there? Was he being moved? From one location to the other? Were they moving him out of the courtyard? Only Luke records that. Peter's screaming, calling down curses, and he looks over. The rooster crows, and Jesus turns and looks at him. What are you doing? After being beaten and demoralized by the Jewish people, now his buddy is screaming in the courtyard about how he doesn't even know him. Peter remembered the word Jesus, the Lord, had spoken to him, saying, Before the rooster crows twice today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside, broke down, and wept bitterly. Very early in the morning at daybreak, the council of all the chief priests, the elders of the people, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin met together again. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you won't believe me. If I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, so you are the Son of God. He replied, you are right 
in saying that I am. Then they said, we don't need any more testimony. We've heard it from his own lips. And they came to a decision to put Jesus to death. Why did they have a second council? They already decided this stuff last night. Why did they have a second council? To make sure to check off that box. We were out in public. It was during the daytime. And we did everything we were supposed to do. I don't want a technicality getting this guy off. Everybody clear? Everybody in on the same story? Good. We condemned him today. Leave it alone. Then the whole assembly rose. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. But by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews didn't enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. I hate that. While these guys are killing the Son of God, they're worried about their religiosity. Oh, I've got to be clean. I can't be ceremonially unclean. i got church today. Really? What are you doing? So Pilate had to come out of the palace and he asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? Well, if he weren't a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. Now this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. What's the problem? Remember I told you last week, there's a rule when you're reading the Gospels and the New Testament. Who's in charge? Rome. They're always in charge. The Jews do not have the right to do whatever they want. And capital murder killing or capital murder charge or following the law to that degree was not up to them. They were not allowed to do that. The only time they were allowed to do that was in an act of passion like with Stephen when they stoned him and he was the first Christian martyr. That would be passed over. In this case, because Jesus was such a public figure, they didn't have the right Rome would have came down and crushed them. They have no right to kill this man. They have to get Rome in on it. But it's a Jewish matter. So how are they going to do that? Well, you'll find out they have to lie. Meanwhile, Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Quote, they took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. End quote. Two interesting things about that. Number one, what was going on in Judas's mind? Here this guy all of a sudden is seized with remorse. Obviously it was not a remorse that led to repentance. Peter's going to go one direction. Judas is going to go the opposite direction. But here you have this guy seized with such remorse, he throws the money back into the temple. That is not, there's two words for temple. One of them is the outer courts. The other one is the inner courts. He ran all the way through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of the women, all the way up. And he was trying to run in towards the area where the priests go. And that's where he stopped. And he has to talk with them. And he says, I have a problem. They said, I don't care what your problem is. So he throws the money into the inner side of the temple where the priests go. They had to pick it up from there. The second interesting thing is the quote. What was the quote? Where is it from? Anybody remember what I just said? It's from the book of Jeremiah, he says. The problem is, it's not from the book of Jeremiah. 
It's from the book, or the book of Zechariah. Well, is Matthew wrong? Why in the world would he just quote the wrong book? And I literally read one commentary and it says, clearly Matthew is recalling from memory because he's wrong. I was like, excuse me? What did you just say? Yeah, Matthew, the really bright guy that's writing down all the gospel and can remember everything Jesus said, now suddenly can't remember what book of the Bible he's trying to quote. There's two reasons you can pick either one um, because they both build on each other. Number one, not only is it a quote from the book of Zechariah primarily, but it has a few words that were also specific to Jeremiah. So you can say he was quoting two prophets and only quoted the bigger dog. Or a lot of times what was common in that day was that they would cite the major prophet, Jeremiah, as citing all the prophets. So whenever a prophet spoke, they would always just say Jeremiah said it because he was the overarching big dog for the prophets of that time. So, But the reason why I mention that is a lot of you would look through the Bible and you go, wait a second, that's not where it comes from. Oh my gosh, the Bible has holes in it. Oh, blah, 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 blah. No, it doesn't. Move on. It says this. It says, Meanwhile, Pilate the governor then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Is that your idea? Or did someone tell you about me? What am I, a Jew? Pilate replied. It's your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What did you do? Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you're a king then, said Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. You're right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. For this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Truth. What is truth, Pilate said. And the chief priests and the elders began to accuse Jesus of many things. We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Christ, a king. But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate asked him, do you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pause. What are their charges now? I thought their charges were about destroying the temple. Now they've changed. Did you see that? Why? Because Rome doesn't care about the temple. I'm not going to kill a guy because you got some squabble over what he said. So what did they have to do? How do you get Rome's interest? Change the charges. What are the charges now? He denies paying taxes. Anybody remember a story where he actually said to pay taxes? Hmm, interesting. Complete fabrication and lie. Then what's their other challenge? He's trying to subvert Rome. He's claiming to be a king. That's a violation against Caesar. You don't mess with Caesar, right? Now they're trying to stir up the Romans to get involved. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for charge against this man. But they insisted, no, he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if he was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he heard about him, he hoped he would see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before that, they were enemies. 
With this, Pilate came back out to the Jews and called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod. He sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and I will release him. But... It is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, who had taken part in a rebellion. He was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed him over to him. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. But he had Jesus flogged. Now, what's Pilate trying to do? Pilate's trying to find some way to let this guy go. He doesn't want the problem. He doesn't want the hassle. He wants to get him out of there. So first he tries to do the, hey, let's release. It's not going his way. So now he has to go to plan B. Plan B is let me beat the living daylights out of him and maybe you'll give up. Let me beat him up sufficiently and maybe that'll be enough for you. So that's what he does. He had Jesus flogged. Then the governor's soldiers led Jesus away to the palace that is called the Praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and clothed him in a purple scarlet robe and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand as a fake scepter and falling on their knees in front of him. They paid homage to him and mocked him, calling out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Now, I have no interest in sensationalizing this. But you must know what occurred if you're to get the picture. Very simply put, it is this. A flogging by the Romans many times resulted in death. So much so that they had to have extreme rules on how you could beat someone and still remain alive. What the Romans tried to do is perfect the art of torture. They try to keep you alive, but inflict the most amount of pain. They're the ones that kind of borrowed the crucifixion idea. The crucifixion idea didn't actually originate with the Romans. They borrowed it from someone else. But they maximized pain. So what they did is they would do the flogging. Now, once again, if you go back to the Passion of the Christ, they would chain you to something to keep your hands out of the way. They chain you to the thing, and then you have to have your back exposed. Then they would bring in the guy, and he had what they had called was the cat of nine tails, if you are familiar with that. It's merely a wooden handle, a short wooden handle, with leather straps. The leather straps were embedded with pieces of bone, uh, rock, Um, what many considered glass at that time, but they would just embed little pieces of metal. And that was all for a purpose. It wasn't for show. The point was, is if the man is stretched out in front of you, the idea is to bring it down and you have to be pretty good at it. And what happens is it locks onto your back. The little embedded pieces are supposed to stick. That's the whole point of it. Once it sticks, you're supposed to pull down and away because it then tears the skin across. Now, the reason why that was specific is it was prophetic. Why? In Isaiah, it says, by his stripes we are healed. When it tears, it leaves strips of skin ripped off the back. Now, from all accounts, it will tear down to where you begin to see things exposed. 
organs exposed. Because they would normally kill people, the intense rule was this. If you go beyond 40 lashes, the man who struck him will now take his place. So in other words, you can't just beat anyone any way you want. You stop at 40 lashes or you're going to get beat. Do you understand? Well, someone in the crowd is always counting because they can't wait to see somebody switch places. So what became famous was the phrase, what? 40 lashes minus one. That's what Paul refers to because they always back up one so that no one can get busted. So if you go beyond 40, normally it would just end up killing a guy. Now, remember, it was after they stripped and beat him and tore off all of his skin. Then they put the crown of thorns on. Now, the crown of thorns, you would go ow, that hurts. But that's not the point. When they put it on, they take the pretend scepter and they smack him over and over on the head. What's the point? Well, you drive it down into the skin, try to get it through the bone. Now, the only purpose in explaining this is that if you remember the prophecies, the prophecies are he's disfigured and he is no longer recognizable as a man. So whatever they're going to make him look like when they get done with swelling and tearing and beating, he's not supposed to be recognizable as a man. He's going to be so tore up. That's why it's important to understand this kind of stuff. And why did he do it? He did it for love. That's why he did it. It's always why he does it. And he kept taking the hits. So we wouldn't. And when you really, really love someone that can't take care of themselves, you do stuff like that. It says this. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ, the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted louder, crucify him. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted with one voice, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Let me explain something to you. When I hear people challenge and say that Jesus never claimed to be God, when I hear challenges that Jesus is just some nice, good teacher guy, it makes me sick to my stomach. Jesus is the Son of God, and He was killed because everyone knew He was claiming to be the Son of God. There is no ambiguity. There is nothing for any other avenue of guessing. He claimed to be the Son of God. Every Jew knew it, and they killed Him for it. And so if you want to look at Jesus, you do not make Him ill to be whatever you want him to be. He is the son of God. And either he's a liar or he's who he said he was. But we must engage with it and allow him to be nothing else but what he claimed to be. He is indeed our savior, the God man. And he was slaughtered for us. We cannot allow that to slip. We cannot give ground on that. He is the son of God. 
He is not just a moral teacher. He is our only hope and our only salvation. He says this. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you'd have no power over me if it wasn't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat in a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. For a third time, he spoke to the Jews. Here is your king, Pilate said. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away and crucify him. What, shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. Finally, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, Pilate decided to grant their demand. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, let this blood be on us and on our children. And he released Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and they led him out to crucify him. In my life, I have a couple triggers. Um, pet peeves, things I don't deal well with. And one of them is being misunderstood. I get so angry and frustrated, like a little kid, if people say things about me that aren't true and I can't defend myself. Because the more I try to tell them it's not like that, the more it sounds like I'm trying to justify myself. I cannot imagine the frustration. Even though Jesus knew what he was doing, even though Jesus set it in motion, even though Jesus went willingly, the maddening aspects of everyone thinking you're something that you're not with the people, the Jewish people that you love so desperately, screaming in unison for your death. Because you're the bad guy. No matter how much you healed them, no matter how much you loved them, no matter how much you went to bat for them, no matter how much you taught them, no matter how much you explained to them, no matter how much you laughed with them and cried with them, they want your head. They won't listen to reason. As you walk through the streets in a moment people shield their children's eyes because they don't even want them looking at you you're going to hang there naked humiliated disgusting and everybody thinks you're something that you're not sure later on we have churches full of Christians but that day there were very few why would he do that? 
Because he can't handle us hurting. That's why. I mean, that's why he does it, right? I mean, what, do you, what, what, what will you do? Right? What are you going to do for your kids? Right? What, that day comes down. You going to die for your kids? He did. I would hope I'm that kind of dad. I don't know about dying for people I don't even like. I don't know about dying for my enemies. I don't know about getting nails while I'm still praying for forgiveness and interceding for the people that are hurting me. I don't know that. I'm not that cool. I haven't matured that far, right? But he did. Every time. And he stood up under more ridicule and more pain to love you. That's got to mean something. What, has he got to do it all over again for every one of us so we now feel it? So we now own it? Has he got to go get beaten in the 21st century? Is that what he has to do? Just to get the respect that he deserves? Just to get the love that's supposed to come his way? Or is one time of dying sufficient? I'm just getting emotional because of the story. Sorry. Many times in my life, I engage with the Bible and with Christianity with a very dry detachment. But not when I hear this. It's different. So what do we do? Do we love Him more? We're supposed to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how do you let your kid go? I mean, I don't understand the Trinity. I don't, I don't get how it looked from your vantage point. All I know is that it was terrible. Um, how do you sacrifice one kid for another? I, I don't understand that either. But Jesus, the sacrifice that you laid down your life is significant. And I guess I only focus on it a couple times a year. I just want to give you the honor and the respect and the love that is supposed to invoke. May you be glorified, praised and loved. In Jesus' name, amen.